there's probably something valid there. I couldn't tell you definitely. My, my job as, as a physician is to tell you what we know. And we don't know a lot of this stuff. So, you know, I have people who are basically saying, oh, I have to go on the AIP diet or the so on and so forth diet, which is fine, but it's really a slippery slope and really easy to get carried away. Inside of you and outside of you right now are trillions of bacteria and yeast working together to keep you healthy. How did they get there? What happens when they're unhappy and how to make them happy? This week on the Maximal Being Fitness, Nutrition, and Gut Health podcast, we talk about the evolutionary origins of the microbiome, the main tribes are phyla and their potential roles, what is a prebiotic versus pro probiotic, how do we get natural pre and probiotics, what is dysbiosis and leaky gut, and what are the best probiotics to supplement both for inflammatory bowel disease and for your health. Do us a favor, Maximal Beings, and leave us a comment or review. Hit the subscribe button and let your friends and family know so that we can get the word out. You cannot supplement your way to health, but there are things that we need to add to our lives that can maximize our pathway to wellness. The American diet is virtually devoid of omega-3 fatty acids, which play a major role in cardiovascular disease, gut permeability, and mental health. Personally, I take omega-3s every night and iHerb is the best place for clean, natural sources of supplements. I love the Zenwise Omega-3 Fatty Acid Supplement, which is free of fish burps and good for the environment. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com slash iHerb, that's I-H-E-R-B, and enter the code B as in boy, D as in dog, B as in boy, 5528, and receive 10% off your orders for all supplements. Maximize your supplements with iHerb. Welcome to Maximal Being, a GI doc and ICU nurse that break down the science so you can exceed your gut health, nutrition, and fitness goals. So let's smash the bro science and optimizing your health with your hosts, Doc Mock and RN Graham. Guys, I, I got to admit that I'm kind of freaking out. I was just reading about the microbiome and I mean, there's bugs crawling all over us at all times. What's going on, Maximal Beings? This is Doc Mock here. If you are a germaphobe, you may want to shut down the dial, but otherwise listen onwards. We're going to be talking today about a nerdy subject. That's right, gut health. Strap on your pocket protectors, put that tape on your glasses. We're talking about the microbiome. I'm Dr. Mock. I'm an advanced endoscopist here in Cleveland, Ohio. That's a doctor that specializes in cancer and fancy procedures. I also do a lot with gut health and nutrition. And joining me today is uh, RN Graham and uh, GI Jeff Casanzo. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to RN Graham is going to introduce himself. Hello, Maximal Beings. RN Graham here. <clears throat> um, Registered nurse down here uh, in ICU in South Florida, ex-fitness competitor, um, and as always, uh, love being on my uh, on our pad- podcast with my good friend Doc Mock and uh, GI Jeff. Passing it off to GI Jeff right now. Hey folks, how are you? GI Jeff here. I also met uh, Doc Mock in our training. I also am a gastroenterologist. I don't do advanced endoscopy. I do just regular endoscopy, so colon cancer screenings, upper endoscopy, and I deal with any number of conditions from heartburn to irritable bowel syndrome to Crohn's disease and so on and so forth. So I really have enjoyed contributing here. This is a topic that I find both interesting and kind of um, sort of exciting to talk about. Uh, I often try to incorporate it with my patients, and uh, hopefully we have a good discussion here today. Doc Mock, right back to you, buddy. Yeah, so the microbiome, it is a huge topic. There are a lot of ways that we can get a lot of literature. This is really where the basic science meets the clinical data, meaning trials that have been done on things like mice, rats in a lab and petri dishes, meeting uh, data that's happened on people. This is a relatively new field, but I will tell you from an evolutionary standpoint, the microbiome is definitely not a new thing. If you, if you go back billions of years ago, uh, on this planet were organisms that are bacteria and they're single cellular organisms. And eventually, 
you noticed uh, these other organisms called eukaryotes. Eukaryotes in Greek essentially mean little kernel or center kernel. And these organisms have a cellular structure. Uh, the cells are the little balls that make up all of your organs and your skin. And all of the cells inside of you have a center part to it called a nucleus. Now, if you read the earliest uh, thought processes on how the microbiome evolved, it's usually for one of the organisms involved in the process to gain some sort of benefit, right? As humans, there are certain things that we can't do, right? We can't uh, generate uh, phosphorus all the time. We have difficult uh, generating nitrogen in certain states. And these bacteria that live inside us help with that. And if you go back billions of years ago, as humans, we didn't have that center part or that nucleus. And actually, um, parts of our cell uh, have bacterial origin. The mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell that helps us uh, lift and work out, generates that energy called ATP, that has DNA that is equivalent to rhizopa bacteria. So the thought is that the microbiome existed years ago. But flash forward now, and we are evolved, some of us human beings, um, and we're walking around with trillions and trillions of these bacteria inside of us. So uh, GI Jeff, having said all of that, you know, when you're, when you're starting to evaluate the information out there, how, how do you start looking at uh, your, your thoughts on microbiome and the data that's out there? So to try to distill down a little bit of what we're kind of talking about here. Um, these, first of all, are organisms that live inside of us that are supposed to be there. They've evolved along with us to help us process anything from the food that we eat to create hormones and chemicals that we need to sort of thrive and exist. And the other thing I want to stress is that we are only scratching the surface of what we truly understand about this. These bugs outnumber the cells in our body by a ratio of about three to one. So the order of magnitude that we're talking about is in the trillions. That's with a T. Um, so the big broad stroke issues to sort of address are what populations of these bugs exist inside our systems? How does that translate to health? How does that translate into disease? What are the associations there and how can we manipulate that? So that's sort of the, the philosophy that I approach when I talk to my patients about this very complicated and ultimately evolving issue. Those are some excellent points. And, and so, you know, if you look at the different kind of tribes of bacteria that we have living inside us, the, the two main players here are bacteroides and firmicutes. They kind of generate most of the workspace inside of our colons. And we'll get into a little bit whether or not they're good or bad guys. Um, Actinobacter, Veruca microbio, and Proteobacter kind of are the minorities in the group, and they occupy less of the space, have less known information out there in terms of the research and less role in, in terms of our health. Now, um, you know, we all live in different parts of the country. Aaron Graham's in Florida. He's, he's from Jamaica originally. Aaron Graham, do we have different microbiomes or because we're the same age, do we have the same microbiomes? What do you think? No, um, interesting enough, I was reading uh, these great articles that some guy wrote, um, <laughs> and I found out that actually um, our microbiome is all different depending on the region we're from, our age, um, and our genetic makeup, which I found extremely interesting. Um, and I learned that it's something that we inherit a lot of times from our, our parents, um, especially through our mother's milk, apparently. So, I mean, look, I, I was trying to nerd out on this subject, but you guys are, you know, the extreme experts in this. So I was shocked to learn that. Um, and I have actually just as many questions um, as probably any viewer would have in this subject. So can you guys explain, you know, how our, you know, regions um, and the foods that we eat make up our uh, microbiome? Do you want to leave this one off, GI Jeff? Or? I can start. So, um, again, let me stress that we're really still learning a lot about this. Um, what we understand at this point is that the composition of the bacteria in your gut is determined pretty early on in life. Um, not only from, you know, uh, breast milk and so on and so forth, there are regional differences in the world. 
and then diet absolutely impacts it. So knowing this and having this sort of, um, you know, guide our studies, we have determined some differences. So for example, and I've taken a couple of notes here, (laughs) two of the big sort of categories of bugs. So bacteroides, these are bacteria that normally live here, but the question becomes, do certain populations have less bacteroides when they should have more? And if so, what does that mean? So bacteroides tend to be seen more in leaner people. They are less efficient at extracting energy from carbohydrates in the food that we eat. Keep in mind that the purpose of these things here, well, there's multiple purposes, but one of them is to help us break down and extract nutrients from the food that we eat. So if you have more of bacteroides and less of firmicutes, does that help you process energy more efficiently and so on and so forth? So there has been pretty clear data that people with higher fiber diets, uh, more organic diets, have better populations of these bacteria as opposed to Western style American diets. And I will openly admit that I'm biased against a Western diet. Hopefully we talk about this a little bit later on. Um, You see more firmicutes and these actually have been shown to be in more obese people and all those sort of unfortunate things that are associated with obesity. So there, there are associations that have been found with these bacteria in terms of their relative abundance. And I stress that they are associations, that is not causality. And it's associations from anything from obesity to things like neurodegenerative disorders, like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or even autism in children. We have found these associations, but we do not know whether or not these cause these conditions, just that they're associated. Doc yeah. Mock, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, am I no, way I, off base or am I... Uh, no, as always, you you are right on. Um, so, you know, a few things, you know, uh, just in the birthing process, you know, if your baby goes through, say, a vaginal birth versus a C-section, they will have different microbiome colonies, even with the same mother. Um, in particular, lactobacillus, which is known to be kind of a protective or good bacteria, will be higher in babies that are born with vaginal deliveries. And actually, C-section born babies will have more similarity to the microbiome of the surgeon that did the surgery to get the baby out than mom in the initial phases, which I thought was fascinating. There are parts in re- regarding our geography, so where we live in relationship to the equator, um, and those are not as linear, right? There, there are specific variations on, in those populations, most likely due to the foods that they eat, as well as their you know humidity level, altitude, etc. A lot of the data that certain foods are beneficial for all people is taken from one isolated community or another, uh, like Bantu Indians or Eskimo populations, and they extrapolate it to us in Western society. So yes, that data does show that these people with very high fiber diets or plant-based diets do very well. They have less gut issues, but that doesn't always correlate with the, the baseline microbiome that we have here in America. You're right. There are some populations, those two big populations, the bacteroides and firmicutes, um, that are associated with certain medical conditions. But again, the relationship is not linear. If you read any review article, they'll tell you bacteroides are higher in obese people and firmicutes are higher in obese people. And so I, I think it has to do with differences in those people um, as individuals. So it's hard to kind of, you know, put all that data on you as, as the person. Actually, on Monday, I had a conversation with one of the world experts in microbiome, Dr. Ganim, and he authored a, a, a book called The Mycobacterial Diet. He, he runs a lab here at Case Western, um, and we're going to actually be doing some research on that subject coming up soon. Um, and he was talking to me about those individual differences and when you're uh, it's hard to get all the data out when you have trillions of populations of bacteria to generalize to one person. Uh, Aaron Graham, there, we, we talked a little bit about the bacteria that lives inside us, but there's also another concept called prebiotics. What's your understanding as somebody that is a physique competitor, as, a, as somebody that you know, keeps their nutrition on point about prebiotic foods? So prebiotics, of course, are the foods that we ingest um, and probiotics are things that we take uh, afterwards, basically. Um, and regarding prebiotics, um, now, from what, I, from what I've gained uh, from reading different articles and 
um, doing a little bit of research, reading Doc Mock's articles, uh, which you have to check out on MaximumBeing.com. Um, those prebiotics, depending on what we're putting in, um, we're going to introduce different bacteria into our system. And there's certain foods that we can introduce um, into our diet that will help boost the amount of, um, of prebiotics we put into, in, into us. Um, now, basically, prebiotics and probiotics are basically very similar. They're basically the same in a sense. Um, but, you know, uh, some foods that we can eat, anything for, uh, fermented, um, kimchi, for example, is a good one. Sauerkraut is a good one. Um, we can also get it from, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, but um, omegas play a part in that as well, correct? Yeah, they're, they're a great kind of substrate, meaning they like are fuel for the probiotics that you take. So in a sense, they're like a prebiotic, something that your bacteria uses the probiotic to turn into something that is useful for you as a human being. Now, I, I do have a, a quick question, actually, from something that you said, which I think that anybody would find interesting. Why is it that, I mean, maybe we don't know the exact answer, but why is it that the surgeon um, that does a C-section, why is it that the, um, the newborn would have some of their microbiome? Is it just from contact exposure? Yes, it, it is from contact. Um, you know, am I going to get your microbiome just from touching you? Probably not because I already have populations of bacteria that live inside of my body, right? So I have 10, ro 10 rows of houses in my colon. All those houses are occupied with people with little bacteria. They're all living there and happy. So if your bacteria comes to the neighborhood, wants to move in, either one of my bacteria is going to have to move out, which is hard to do. Um, or we're going to have to build another house, which just doesn't happen in the human body. So it doesn't work the same. While a baby, they have a, just an empty neighborhood. It's ready for people to move in. One condition that we treat as gastroenterologists, and I'm sure uh, GI Jeff knows where I'm going with this, C Clostridium difficile or C. diff, that happens when you uh, deplete or you move out bacteria from the houses by killing them with antibiotics. That leaves empty houses and this C. diff is just like sitting on the street waiting for people to move out so they can squat in your home while you're out of town. And they just move in and take over the neighborhood and they are bad news bears. Um, uh, G.I. Jeff, do you see people with, with C. diff and, you know, do you think that there's a role of probiotics for those particular patients? That's a good, so do I see people with C. diff? The answer is absolutely yes. And I think yeah. that the reason for that is, is, <laughs> Well, I'll try not to get on the soapbox here, but um, antibiotics are used um, with not as much discretion as I think should happen. Okay. So you have people who get the sniffles and they're basically demanding a Z pack from their primary care doctor and so on and so forth. So antibiotics are out there. And as a consequence, we're dealing with increased uh, incidence of C. difficile, which can be a truly life threatening infection. The role of probiotics, and actually, let me just sort of take a quick detour back. Okay, so pro versus prebiotics. So prebiotics are generally foods that we eat that promote the health and growth of these healthy bacteria. So it's not a bacteria per se. It's food that serves as fuel for the bacteria. Probiotics are, in fact, living organisms that you can take in capsule format, which is the whole Pandora's box of a discussion that we'll probably get into. But you can also generally manipulate with food as well. And that's basically putting the bacteria that you want in your system on purpose. The role of probiotics when it comes specifically to C. diff infection is unclear. Um, we, there's a difference between C. diff infection, which is a, which is a true infection, and what we call antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Now, the use of probiotics to prevent antibiotic-associated diarrhea is there. That the research is there, and there's some validity to it. There's really not a lot of robust scientific data to suggest, to suggest that taking a probiotic will decrease your chances of developing C. diff. The whole idea is that you only want to use antibiotics, medical antibiotics, when you really have to. Yeah, so, so just to kind of summarize all that, so prebiotic is available in both pill form and supplements with things called FOS, inulin, and there are specific types of fiber that are considered prebiotics. That's larch, 
um, as well as modified citrus pectin, which is uh, admittedly my fiber of choice when I'm prescribing that to patients. Um, there are also foods. So that's things like artichokes, asparagus, onions, chicory, garlic, bananas, uh, blueberries, most, most root vegetables. And then like RN Graham talked about, there are foods that serve the purpose of both being a prebiotic as well as having active cultures in them, like kimchi, kefir, uh, yogurts, Greek yogurt uh, with live cultures. And those things tend to uh, have a high level of either the two, the two main beneficial types of bacteria, which, which is lactobacillus and uh, bifidobacterium. So you can get uh, probiotic and prebiotic effects by eating clean, eating good foods that come from nature and adding in fer fermented foods and pickled foods uh, into your diet. Um, but there is the alternative, right? We see this all the time in, in all of our clinical practices. People come in and, and they want to get put on a pill. They want a magic fix that fixes everything right away. Um, and there are certain pill forms that uh, are more beneficial than others. Um, and actually, one of our listener mail questions kind of alludes to, I think, the best type of probiotic that's out there. Um, but, you know, what do you guys think are the, the best uh, components to a probiotic pill. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So let me start by saying not all probiotics are created equal. Not all probiotics. Actually, I don't think any probiotics, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Doc Mock, are FDA regulated. So what you get is unpredictable. You want to look for two, maybe three things. Number one is lactobacillus. Number two is bifidobacteria. And then number three is what's called saccharomyces, which is actually considered a brewer's yeast. Um, and then there's, of course, the general philosophy that more is better. So you want to go for however many billion CFUs, which stands for colony forming units. But you generally want to look for those three big categories uh, of bacteria, lactobacillus, um, bifidobacteria, and saccharomyces. Yeah, Saccharomyces is actually a brewer's yeast, right? And it actually was not commercially available here in the United States when GI Jeff and I were going through our residency, maybe to early fellowship, but now it's available commercially. And, and yes, the doses are about 10 billion colony forming units for both of those and around uh, 500 milligrams three times a day for the Saccharomyces. If you're, if you're looking for a conglomerate pill, you want trillions of colony forming units as the dose. Um, now there are pill forms that are available that have kind of a good mixture of everything. Um, but there are foods that, you know, like we talked about that have a preponderance for one type or the other. So kombucha pickles and kimchi have a ton of lactobacillus, sauerkraut, Greek yogurt, kefir have a good mix of bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. And you have to kind of add the brewer's yeast to that. So, uh, so those are some natural pre and probiotics that you can take in your diet. Now, what about, you know, so obviously there is some benefit for the, the gut itself, but what about, you mentioned ties to things like Alzheimer's disease and neurocognitive diseases. And there's actually some early data about cardiovascular disease. How, how does that make sense? I mean, it's in the gut. Aaron Graham, do you want me to take this one or? Well, um, I will touch base on it real quick. Um, there is definitely a connection between um, your gut health and apparently your psyche as well. Um, and of course, it then reaches out to other portions of your body. Once again, these guys are the experts when it comes to that type of stuff. So GI Jeff, by all means. So, you know, uh, not only do sort of we as a scientific community, we're just beginning to understand this. I also have a pretty tenuous grasp on it. So let me just explain to you my understanding of what's going on here. The sort of historic thought about the, the gut being one long tube that serves to sort of mechanically break down and process food is, is a fantastic oversimplification. So you have these trillions of organisms that do anything from help you break your food down, but they produce neurotransmitters and neurochemicals. You may have heard the, of the neurochemical called serotonin, which is often implicated in depression. What we're actually understanding is that about 90, 90% of your body's serotonin is in your gut, not your brain. So these bacteria produce hormones that can affect your mood. So these, this whole like 
oh my, I have a gut feeling. Look, that's a very real thing. These are neurotransmitters that are produced in your gut. Imbalances in these bacteria can sort of increase what we call the inflammatory cascade, which sort of can do anything from cause leaky, the quote-unquote leaky gut, um, you know, general inflammation, which can be associated with advanced cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, and so on and so forth. So it starts with imbalances in the gut that lead to a predilection towards just systemic inflammation. Um, and that's sort of the, the beginning of these associations that we are beginning to learn. Doc Mock sounds, sounds reasonable. Yeah. So, I mean, these bacteria can be your friends when they stay put where they belong, which is inside of your gut, but they also can be your enemies in a sense, right? When they're kind of ticked off at you from putting garbage in your body for years. They can generate harmful compounds that directly affect certain systems in the body. In particular, a recent article in 2019 looked at a compound that was uniquely generated by the gut microbiome called TMAO, that's trimethylamine N-oxide. And what this does is it actually causes atherosclerotic plaques to occur. Remember going back to our, our prior podcast where we talked about Ansel Keys as the guy that kind of led the, hey, carbs are good, fats are bad thing for your blood vessels. And now we've found out that fat in doesn't lead to fat inside of your arteries and atherosclerosis, that it's more inflammation. And this particular compound made by the gut may have a big role in that process. Also, the concept of leaky gut. So read uh, the scientific literature and, you know, you'll find some stuff, somewhat limited data. But I will tell you, there is now objective testing that's coming out. And we actually just wrote an article on MaximalBeing.com about this, where we talk about, you know, the cellular structure in your intestinal tract that has the hard job of letting your food get through, right? So that you can get amino acids to your muscles after your workout, that you can get fat to make your neurohormones, but it has to keep the bad stuff out. And when you damage it, you poke holes or you kind of tell the guards to like leave the gate and all kinds of stuff can get through. If you have a Cheeto that gets through, it gets into your bloodstream and your body's like, what the hell is this stuff? I'm going to attack it you get a massive inflammatory response. And when you have that inflammatory response, your body can't always protect that. It can get through this barrier in your brain called the blood brain barrier and leads to chronic inflammation. And, and that's how there's a link between those two. Now, your gut also has its own brain system to it, its own neurologic system. Arne Graham, do you want to just mention a little bit about the, the gut brain, that enteric nervous system? So, you know, generally speaking, people think we have uh, the two uh, nervous systems, sympathetic and parasympathetic, flight, uh, fight and flight, and rest and digest. But actually, there is a third. Uh, it's called the ENS, the enteric nervous system. And basically what happens with the enteric nervous system is it ties in your brain and your gut together. Um, so, for example, if you're under large amounts of stress, you may notice that your stomach feels a little different, feels a little weird. Um, and that's because there is a there is a connection between the two. Um, and of course, anything that goes on your brain does affect you throughout the rest of your body. So um, the nervous system is a big part. It's once again, foods we put in our bodies, the stress that we put, put ourselves under, amongst other things. Um, and this does play a part um, in leaky gut. Um, Doc Mock, um, I want to circle back a little bit. Uh, when it comes to leaky gut, is it just, um, you know, factors that we can control or is it things that are out of our control as well? Yeah, the, there are some things that you can't fix, like a systemic illness, for instance. You can't fix your genetic preponderance or your genetic risk for getting a specific disease. I think that the best concept to illustrate this is celiac disease. With celiac disease, most people carry a white blood cell marker called HLA DQ2 and DQ8. But there are people that are walking around with those things on their white blood cells. They don't have celiac disease. Exactly, right. So if it was just the gene, if it was just nature and not the nurture, then those people, then everybody with that gene would get celiac disease and they just do not. 
So there are factors that we can control. Um, I, I think maybe I'll turn it back over to GI Jeff to just talk about those factors that we can control to improve our gut health. So a brief word about the enteric nervous system. So it does have an independent function, which means that it sort of, it has roles about promoting the, par- the, the motility of the gut, you know, helping you move your bowels and so on and so forth. And then it also has, uh, has roles in terms of producing neurochemicals. It's important to understand that it's a two-way street, which means that what happens in your enteric nervous system can send information towards the brain and then vice versa. So yeah, you know, if you're nervous about getting on a flight and you feel like you have to go use the bathroom, that's that's a very real thing. This is a, this is a dialogue between the two different uh, nervous systems. Um, so what we can do to sort of modify it, right? There is a lot out there. If you and, and the problem is, how do you process it all, and where do you start? Okay, there are so many different diets there. I have to kind of stress that a lot of these diets, I would say maybe the majority of these diets have not been really robustly studied. When my patients ask me about it, I, I tell them the honest truth. We don't really know for certain. There's probably something valid there. I couldn't tell you definitely. My, my job as, as a physician is to tell you what we know. And we don't know a lot of this stuff. So, you know, I have people who are basically saying, oh, I have to go on the AIP diet or the so on and so forth diet, which is fine, but it's really a slippery slope and really easy to get carried away. So, you know, I like to start as simple as possible. The fewer the ingredients, the better. If you read an ingredient label and you can't pronounce something, maybe you shouldn't eat it. Before you start saying, I can't eat A, B, C, D, and E, maybe start simple first. And then the other important thing is to develop a good relationship with some kind of medical or healthcare professional that you can work with um, to help guide you. So does that make sense? So, you know, you can't control your genetics, but you can control what you put in your body. And this is part of what we're learning can really have a lot of long lasting impacts. Yeah. I think, I think there are definitely some core principles to that. You know, butyrate is the fuel for our colon and you get butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid from fiber, right? The best source of fiber, vegetables. So eat lots of vegetables, more than the recommended daily allowance, which is about 10 grams. I can tell you, I, I've tracked it before. I eat between 50 and 60 grams of fiber which my friends that are gastroenterologists, you know, we have great dinner conversations, but they say, are you serious? Like, how do you have normal bowel function? Your bowels and your biome will adapt and they will be very happy. Trust me. Um, The recommended daily allowance is one fifth to one sixth of that. On the other hand, your small bowel, right? Your colon is your large bowel. Your small bowel is fueled on a protein or an amino acid called glutamine and arginine. So some people will advocate for adding a supplement. Usually if you're getting clean sources of protein, you will get glutamine. Um, and, and that is adequate. Um, bone broth and collagen peptides tend to have some glutamine in it. That's very good for, you know, improving your, your leaky gut and your small bowel health. Um, there are two supplements that, you know, and really the few of the two supplements that I recommend to any human being, and that's vitamin D, which does have some benefit um, in, in uh, dysbiosis or, or problems where your gut microbiome is unhappy, and omega-3 fatty acids. And it's because as human beings, we're not outside enough, right? So we don't get enough vitamin D. You get 10,000 units if you are fully exposed outside as nature intended to you for free. But if you're not doing that, take a vitamin D supplement, especially if you live in Cleveland where we don't have a sun on the weather plan and omega-3 fatty acids, which we don't get from sources of food other than really nuts, which have a low percentage and wild caught, not farm raised fish. Um, Other than that, you know, it's prebiotic foods, lots of fiber, lots of vegetables and eating clean and eating normal foods. There are two um, types of foods that can be bad for your biome, lactose and gluten. Um, You can work with your doctor with eliminating these from your diet. And also I would say added sugar is another no-no. You want to keep this number under 25 grams. Um, Why don't we go ahead and- I don't mean to interrupt you, Doc Mock. Uh, RN Graham, I have just a sort of a curious question. When you were competing, um, what kind of strategies did you do with respect to diet? 
Did you, I mean, I assume that you tracked macros, but did you follow anything in particular? Did you, well, what did you sort of focus on when, when you were doing kind of a dietary preparation for a competition? Um, well, it, it was very, very strict. I, I weighed out all my foods. Um, and it was funny because I remember um, when I put together a little diet plan for Doc Mock, he was like, this is way too much veggies. I, I got to cut back. Um, and it's because it, it kept me full, you know, and it, it kept me from getting those cravings. And the other big thing is it did help um, my GI motility because, of course, you know, I'm going to tell you one way you're going to get in shape and lose weight and get lean is moving those bowels. <laughs> um, the other big thing that it's interesting that um, Doc Moth touched on not too long ago um, was glutamine. I took glutamine um, post-workout, um, and basically that really helped once again with my gut motility. Um, and I did the research on it. I found out that it helps with the permeability of the gut, um, so that you don't have that leaky gut. So taking in all that all that fiber that I was taking in, um, you know. I still, sorry to the to the listeners out there, I still had solid form stool. I wasn't, you know, um, and it really didn't destroy my stomach like I thought it would. Um, so, you know, my big thing was making sure I get the right amount of proteins, making sure I get in the right amount of fibers. In fact, sometimes when I could not get in the, the right amount of fibers, I did take fiber supplements. Um, and the... I mean, otherwise than, than, you know, the regular fitness stuff, it was really, really, really all diet. Um, I did take um, a probiotic as well, just because I'm running down my system. I'm running down my body. I'm using up tons of nutrients. So I did take um, probiotics and I, and I was big on my prebiotics as well. Um, but really that's, it's, there's no magic pill per se. The most important thing to me was eating real food, which is something that my preaches. No matter what type of, you know, um, prebiotic I was taking, if I was eating crap, it didn't matter. You know, if I was eating real food, I was eating, you know, on, you know, when I need to eat on time, I was good. And then that's really, that's really all it is. There's, there's no magic to it. For 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 those of you, I don't, Doc Mock, I don't mean to be kind of commandeering this, but it's, it's for those of you who are not visually seeing this, you know, as RN Grimm is talking, you see both gastroenterologists simultaneously nodding their heads yes <laughs> in agreement with exactly what you're saying. So it's just, it's nice to hear this. So, you know, I, I think that the important kind of take home point there is if you eat quality, if you put quality in, the need for exogenous extra supplementation is usually pretty small. So you start with putting important, good quality stuff into your body now, and then supplement will, as needed to kind of maximize, you know, efficiency and so on and so forth. But it starts with diet. It, it does. And going back to the, you know, entric nervous system, I felt the difference. I literally, the inflammation, because I was eating so well, wasn't in any pain. after my, The pain after my workouts weren't there. My joints weren't as stiff, um, you know, also, the foods that I was eating, like, they made me happy. They made me feel good. Um, also, because I was working out and relieving all this stress, I'm, when I say my body felt great, it's not just necessarily the visual aspect of it. It's how you feel. And I felt phenomenal. And I know there was a link between, you know, the foods I was eating and what I was putting in my system to reduce inflammation, to reduce stress. It all combined. Um, and it, well, definitely the entric nervous system played a huge part in that. Yeah, moving people definitely have moving bowels, right? And and there's a there's a link there. And and there is there's data on both sides of the fence, but you know, having good bacteria, whatever that means for you as an individual, may actually correlate with some improvements in exercise performance, like VO2 max. That research has been done and is ongoing. GI Jeff, you want to summarize everything and then we'll head to a commercial break and listener mail. I mean, some studies even show that exercise alone can help diversify the flora in your gut, um, which is pretty, pretty wild. If you ask me, I mean, if you press me for how exactly that happens, I could not give you an answer. So bottom line is eat quality foods. Um, don't let yourself go down the rabbit hole when it comes to strictly following one type of diet, because the robustness of the scientific information there is not likely there. Um, supplements are fine for the most part, but the truth is that they may not always be necessary. 
I think I would always encourage some guidance by a healthcare professional if you're really looking to get some supplements there. Um, but it starts and stops with what you're putting in your body. The two things when I was taking notes, I, I don't, I'll be brief here, Doc Mock. I think it's important to kind of define two things because they come up so very often. And it's all, I think it's sort of um, people would blow by it, but I think it's important. So number one is what is organic food? And number two, what is GMO food? So do you mind if I take a quick minute to kind of talk about this? Okay. Yeah. So, and I looked this out, I took my little handy notes here. So organic food is basically, it's food grown and processed according to federal guidelines that addresses anything from soil quality, animal raising practices, pest and weed control, and the use of additives. Um, and animals are not given antibiotics or growth hormones. There's generally no conventional pesticides. Okay. So it's essentially organic, meaning what the earth actually provides, not manipulated. When it comes to GMO, that stands for genetically modified organisms. So that's interesting. And it's a it's another Pandora's box here. So there have been techniques developed to in, involve anything from cattle to corn that will try to give them survival advantages, uh, resistance against pests or extreme weather conditions and so forth. Therefore, make them more likely to grow, more likely to be sold and then the question becomes, how does the manipulation of the genes for those products trickle down into our bodies? So those are those two buzzwords that you often see when you're talking about a clean diet. I do recommend organic foods and I do recommend non-GMO foods because you kind of, you want to keep it as simple and natural as you possibly can. Because the food, if you have genetically engineered food that was grown to withstand blight in Kansas or whatever, you have a gene there that could be ingested by you. We don't really understand what it's doing to the microbiome in your body. So keep it simple, read labels. And that's pretty much where I would start with any patient looking for advice. Yeah. I, I admittedly during COVID, I've read like a lot on organic farming and also a book on GMO called the fate of food. And you know, like red grapefruit is not a naturally existing type of grapefruit. That grapefruit was irradiated and turned red and now it's everywhere in the stores, right? It's not necessarily bad. It's just, it's just not red. natural. Yeah. It's just not natural. But there are sometimes when GMOs are advantageous, like, you know, the book goes through not, not to get too much into the weeds here, but in Africa, there, there was like these pests that were infiltrating all of the corn crops and they were able to genetically modify the corn crops so that people can eat so that they can live. So GMO may be bad, but, but may also be very good. You right. Know? All right. We're going to go to a brief commercial break and we'll be back with listener mail. If you're stuck at home and cannot make it to the grocery store, delivery may be the best way to stay clean and healthy. Instacart is the national leader in the direct-to-home delivery service. With numerous major chains and food from smaller stores, you can get those local veggies sent directly to your doorstep. Head on over to MaximalBean.com Instacart and maximize your nutrition today. What's going on, Maximal Beans? It's Doc Mock here. Many of you are returning to the gym now, but some are not going back. Regardless of what you plan, Rogue has got the right gear to fit your needs. I personally own a barbell set and love it. The black op shorts are sweat resistant and flexible for getting deep in your squats. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com Rogue for our referral link. Order three items and they ship for free. And as usual, it's Doc Mock and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness. Okay, and we are back. Uh, Chappy98 asks, what is the best pill-based probiotic? GI Jeff. Do I have to answer this question? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, none. <laughs> I, I, you know, so I, I don't... Uh, Kimchi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, get it with food. If you So we talked about this a little bit briefly in the past, Doc Mock. Um, the probiotic that I liked, can I put say a brand name? Am I allowed yeah. to do that here? Yeah, we're not so getting the probiotic that I generally like with one significant exception is called Align, um, A-L-I-G-N. There's a generic iteration of that that's about half the price. Um, if I am going to recommend a pill-based probiotic, that's usually the one I do. Um, but again, we talked about looking for 
adequate quantities of lactobacillus, bifidobacteria, and saccharomyces. The other thing is this, it's always unclear to me when to tell people to stop taking probiotics, because I do think there's a, there's diminishing returns. And I do think there comes a point at some point where you're just more wasting money than actually getting benefit. So my overall approach is for the most part, there are exceptions. I think you're going to talk about this, Doc Mock. For the most part, they're harmless. Um, you know, I, I think that you, you know, it's worth a try, but I don't think it's something that I recommend pa patients to take forever. That's All right, Graham. Answer, sir. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what you took when you were training or? Um, I don't, unfortunately. Um, but I am on the same side with GI Jeff and I'm pretty sure you. Yeah. Look, listen, I get it. I get that our innate response to thing is give me a pill, pop it real quick, keep moving. It's not as good as real food. Nothing is as good as real food. I don't care if you're taking a protein supplement. I don't care if you're taking, um, you know, trying to take a probiotic, whatever it may be, but, you know, vitamin D, vitamin E, whatever it may be, the best thing that you can do is do it with real food. If you can't, then okay, yes, go ahead and try to supplement it with, you know, a pill. Um, but once again, you know, GI, Jeff, you, talk, you touched on it earlier. These things are not FDA approved. You know, so what you're getting sometimes, you don't really know. Um, so uh, I, I really honestly cannot remember which one I took. Um, but, you know, there, there's so many other other alternatives than, than a pill. And there's so many other ways that you can spend your hard earned dollars, you know, like I think that's the biggest thing that's going to hurt from a probiotic is your wallet. Um, I guess the one with the best evidence is one called VSL number three. Um, but really just look for those components and just be aware that a lot of these companies will put fillers and additives and all kinds of things that you can't pronounce. And, and if you're going to get leaky gut anyway, it's with all of that garbage. So, you know, you can get it in natural food sources. It takes like $1 to make kimchi at home, maybe $2. You can learn how to make kombucha at maximalbeing.com if you head to our course. Um, so I would say natural is better. Uh, the next question is for Rochelle, a 457, and she asks, will probiotics help inflammatory bowel disease? GI Jeff. So this is one of the sort of topics where there is a little bit more robust science. Um, VSL number three is one of the ones that I definitely do recommend, most specifically for ulcerative colitis. Um, and actually, even more specifically, it's what we call pouchitis, which is after you've had your colon removed for severe disease and you have a remaining pouch uh, right near your rectum, if that becomes inflamed, VSL number three has, has pretty clearly been shown to help that. So with ulcerative colitis, which is one of the two big sort of inflammatory bowel disease uh, conditions, I do recommend VSL number three. It can be a little tricky to find. It can be a little expensive, but the scientific data is there. Unfortunately for Crohn's disease, which I usually like to describe to my patients as kind of like a distant cousin to ulcerative colitis, the scientific data is not there. The bacterial population, um, probably does play a role in Crohn's disease activity, but we haven't exactly figured out how to manipulate that. So it's one of those things where it's probably fine to take, but it's not a substitute for medication. So bottom line, VSL number three, most likely for ulcerative colitis, even post-surgical ulcerative colitis. Yeah. And the cost of VSL number three is on average like 70 to $80 per month that I've seen. I mean, you might be able to get better out there somewhere, but that, that is really the best that I have seen. Gentlemen, as always, this has been an amazing discussion. I, I mean, I always learn a lot talking to both of you. Um, you know, what, what's going on in your life, GI Jeff? Uh, other than a four week old infant child downstairs that I need to go tend to a little bit. That's probably the big one. <laughs> so you might say I look, I just came from a workout because I had 25 minutes to spare before we started this. So I work out when I can, but my last month has been consumed with uh, baby care. So it's uh, if that's why I look a little tired, but uh, we're doing okay. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate Congratulations. it. Congratulations. Aaron Graham, what's going on with you and uh, Maxwell Bean? Me? Nothing. 
<laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, listen, we're, we're still down here um, dealing with uh, COVID um, in the ICUs. Um, listen, people out there, get your flu shot, mask up, please. We're, we're going into flu season, and, um, you know, you listen to the experts, it, it, it can be a scary one if we don't prepare and do the things we're supposed to do. Remember, protect your family, your friends. Um, we want these businesses like these gyms and our favorite places to stay open. So please do your part and uh, make sure you're doing what you can to, to help us keep our facilities open. Um, as far as Maximo Bean goes, listen, usual, great articles. Go ahead and uh, check us out at MaximoBean.com. Um, you can also find us on Twitter um, as well as Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you know, we really look forward to getting some more clients. Go ahead on there. You can also see some of our client reviews. Um, Doc Mock has done an excellent job making up some phenomenal nutrition plans. So please check that out. Um, otherwise than that, I might wear Detroit, but I am, uh, I am down in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do us a favor and go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Leave us a comment. Feel free to shoot us an email at team at maximalbeing.com. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com if you want to learn anything. We also have some great deals worked out with you some, with some sponsors. And we are happy to work with your, your doctors. Please make sure that you consult with your physicians, although we are all licensed, board-certified healthcare professionals. This is for your entertainment value only. And we do recommend that you consult with your healthcare provider before you implement any of the changes here in the podcast. And as always... I'm Doc Mock with GI Jeff and RN Graham, and we are here to maximize your pathway to wellness. See you later. Next week on the Maximal Being Podcast. You have to toss back a couple beers. You have to drink a nice scotch or whiskey or or a nice glass of wine. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? You're right. Like, whether we're happy, we're sad, we're angry. It doesn't matter. People are drinking left and right. They're coping with things with drinking. They're celebrating with drinking. But to be honest with you, I have not been drinking in 2020. Do us a favor, Maximal Beings, and leave us a comment or review. Hit the subscribe button. Let your friends and family know so that we can get the word out. And until next time, this is Doc Mock, and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness.